Ron is going to preach here in a moment, but I wanted to start with prayer. And just a uh, brief comment. Um, Christy and I were in the kitchen yesterday, and this is my wife. I was sharing with her. I said, you know, I, I miss everybody at Crosspoint. It's been um, – you turn that monitor off? Okay, thanks. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks now where we've kind of throttled back in terms of what we're doing corporately because of all the activities that are going on with family and friends and neighbors and things like that during the holiday season. And Christy and I were talking about that. We we're like, man, I sure miss everybody, but, man, I feel so refreshed. I feel like we've, you know, the staff and the elders, that we've kind of had a chance to catch our breath. And I thought, you know, but I miss everybody in the bride corporately. And we realized that the cool thing about the holiday season, if we're intentional, if we're conscious of it, is that all the things we've been equipped for in the last few months, sickness for the glory of God, John chapter 11. He stinketh, John chapter 11, for nine weeks. Um, the sacrifice series where we've learned about what, that happen, what happened on the cross, what exactly Christ achieved. Those things have equipped us for kingdom conversations that we can have with family members and with neighbors and with friends during this holiday season. So it's not like we're not having much church. It's like the church is deployed. We've been equipped. We've been trained. We've been fitted. We've been shaped. We've been honed. And now we go worship out loud for a few weeks with our neighbors and our friends and our family members that we may not see very often. And we get to have the chance to have conversations that we may not ever have or that we may, may have never been prepared for. But now we can go, hey, do you have a Bible? Go grab that. I want to show you something. Or let me grab my Bible and show you something that will give you hope when you're dealing with this sickness or that will give you hope in trying to understand what salvation is about understand what Christ did for you. So see this morning, not as getting your church on. I'm going to say that again. Don't see this as going to church. We don't go to church. We are the church. We gather corporately this morning to be equipped for kingdom conversations and divine appointments and kingdom moments with families, neighbors, friends, workmates, children. That's our ministry, y'all. We're not equipped just to attend church next week, okay? I'm going to pray for Ron. I also want to pray also for uh, the local churches in our area, and um, just pray that we'll be attentive and equipable this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you so much for this time that we've had this season to kind of catch our breath and um, to be refreshed as we spend time with family members. And, uh, Lord, I just pray that you'll find us attentive to those kingdom appointments and kingdom opportunities and those divine conversations where we can give someone hope. Lord, I pray also that you'll find us in the receive and believe and do and worship mode as we receive these messages and these lessons and, and as we study the word every day that we are feasting on that and it's finding a home in us and it's finding an expression from us as we respond to the rich word that you've given us. Lord, we want to turn this time over to you. Uh, personally, from the point of view of Crosspoint Fellowship, I just pray that you'll find us attentive this morning and find us equipable and find us in the worship uh, mode and just give us a divine ability to tune out all the distractions, all the New Year's plans, even for the next few minutes. Just tune those out and recognize the gravity of engaging the living word and in so doing, engaging a living God. Lord, I also want to pray corporately 
uh, for the Christians in Greenville, for the other churches that are in this area that are Christ-focused churches. Lord, I pray that we will grow corporately in worship and um, in agreement. And I pray that you'll find a people here in this community, in the Greenville area, these 98 Christian churches in this area, that you'll find us on the same sheet of music as, as um, enjoying and savoring a risen Lord and preaching and sharing and worshiping out loud a risen Christ and a shared cross and a shared empty tomb and guard us from ever entertaining a spirit of competition. Lord, in these next few moments, I also want to pray for Ron. I just pray that you will empty him. I pray that you will move him out of the way, that he will not even be conscious of himself, but that he will just deliver a powerful word that you've worked in him first. And uh, we thank you so much for the time that we're about to have with you. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Okay, for those of you who uh, don't know me, I'm Ron Perrone, I'm one of the pastors of Cross Point, and for those of you that are part of this church enough to go to the website and look at the elders blog, you know that this is really hard for me. I am suffering for the gospel up here, um, and as I appreciated really what Scott did with, with worship, I was thinking, I don't need to preach. He could just do a few more songs that go with that text. And, and, um, and then I was reminded uh, there is a purpose to this and a point to this in uh, Romans ten fourteen. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him on whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Um, the Lord seems to put a special emphasis on this, this task of proclaiming his truth. And um, there are many ways to come to faith through opening your word, through conversation with friends. Um, but there's apparently something special about this task of preaching, of proclaiming. Um, the other thing that was happening to me up front there, and I'll just uh, credit John Piper with this as I do so much. Every time I quote somebody, my wife assumes it's John Piper because probably for the last 15 years he has uh, helped me understand this word more than anyone. Um, and that's a little acronym, and I would encourage you to write this down. It's worth memorizing. I didn't think about um, working through that this morning in the front row before coming up here, but it just popped into my head because I've heard Piper say it, and I've read it, and I've tried to do it myself many, many times, and that is A-P-T-A-T. -A, -T. Uh, a, acknowledge your inability to do anything apart from his power. Uh, we can't accomplish anything, whether we're teaching, whether we're doing ministry, whether we're trying to love someone, whether we're trying to preach, of all things, um, apart from his power. Uh, P is to pray for that enabling power. Um, T is to trust him to work through you, uh, not in perfection, certainly, but he will use you in the task. Um, a is to act. Get up and do it. 
and T is later to thank him for using you. Uh, so that was a freebie. I didn't plan that. Um, for the last several weeks, uh, I felt drawn to meditate on these first nine verses in First Peter, and so when Ben asked me to preach this morning, that was where I decided to go. It's a passage that's densely packed with truth, and I hope you'll find the time to study it for yourselves later at length. If you have your own Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, use one of the Pew Bibles. It's our gift to you. Put your name in it. Take it home. And do you have a Pew Bible? Can you yell out the page number for First Peter, Jeff? I'm sorry, I meant to get this and I... Thank you. 1014. Yeah, that was my sweet daughter. Um, that was the rest of my introduction. I was going to mention, for, especially for the kids, I'm, more importantly, uh, Miss Patty's husband. And for the kids, I'm baby Jack's grandpa. And Jack is here and doing well, 11 months old. Uh, I'm going to read those first nine verses again. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Please pray with me. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Please fill me with your spirit and enable me to share your word in a way that brings glory to your son and continues your saving work in each of your children in this place. Please keep any errors that I speak from distracting us from your truth. Please enable the young children to listen attentively so that they can hear your word and so that they won't make it hard for their parents to hear what God has planned for them this morning. Amen. Is your life hard? Sometimes. Are you suffering? Are you dealing with problems at work, at home, with your health, with the health of a loved one? Do your circumstances sometimes cause you to consider where is God in all of this? Do friends or family harass you for your faith? 
How can you have hope even when life seems overwhelming? It's my prayer that God will use this passage to convince us that he's merciful and powerful and that he uses our suffering for our good. The letter opens in the usual way for a letter of those times. Uh, the writer and the recipients named Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter, an apostle or sent one of our Lord, addresses this letter to Christians who are dispersed or scattered in various parts of modern-day Turkey. He refers to them with two words that are packed with meaning that I think allow us to apply this to us. Um, elect exiles. The word elect describes those who are chosen by God for salvation. The term exiles refers to our very real status as pilgrims or refugees in this world wherever we happen to live. First point of application. I encourage you to think long after you leave this place on the implications of your status as an exile. It's a real status that all Christians should own. It should at least make us realize that our roots shouldn't be too deep, and that might create in us a willingness to respond if the Lord calls us to a different place. We shouldn't be too attached to things so that we can travel quickly and lightly if he calls us to do so. Verse 2 it's one of those great verses in which we see the three-in-one nature of our God spelled out. We're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The Father knew in eternity past who he would elect to salvation and that we would be exiles, pilgrims, refugees in this world. There's no place for denying the foreknowledge of God to those of us who believe that God speaks to us through this word and that he's truthful, that he's reliable. There are folks, believe it or not, who describe themselves as evangelicals who are calling into question that attribute of God, that ability of him, of his, to, to know the future. We're elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. The Spirit separates us. He sets us apart for a life of holiness. Sanctification is that process in which we practice the various means that the Spirit uses to change us to be more like the Son. Things like praying in the Spirit, giving sacrificially to His work, abiding in His Word, not just reading it superficially on a schedule like I do sometimes, just living in it, abiding in it. He uses his word as it's taught and preached to sanctify us. And he also uses that three-mile-an-hour dailiness of living in community to sanctify us as we learn how to love each other, as we learn how to serve each other, as we learn how to forgive each other. We're also elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. We're to obey his commands through the power of the Spirit. We can't do it in our own power. And we're to expect purification through his death, and we're to expect to share in his suffering. 
we shouldn't be surprised if this walk with Christ bloodies us. Persecution and pain are normal means he uses to sanctify us. Second point of application. I would encourage all of you to join me this next year. If you're doing New Year's resolutions like I am, start with spiritual ones. Don't put losing weight at the top um, or exercising more. But read through the Gospels this year with a special eye to looking for the Lord's commands and write them down and approach them with a spirit of radical obedience. I meant to ask you for that quote about the Bible and doing you. Okay, all right. Sorry, I walk in and I'm so nervous and distracted. Two things. I meant to get page numbers. I meant to do that. Um, Two things. I've encouraged it before. We have these out in the lobby. Discipleship Journal Bible Reading Plan. Pick one up. Commit to go through the scriptures either in a year or two. This is so, so valuable. If you don't have a plan, you won't see Obadiah for 10 years. You won't see Jude for 10 years. And those are important books. Like every book, it's all inspired. So pick one up, please. Go through it as a family. Go through it as individuals. But abide in it. Don't just read it and check off boxes like I'm so guilty of so often. The other thing about commands. Um, One of my Christmas presents is John Piper's new book, What Jesus Demands from the World. He did that exercise, and he came up with 50. So if you wanted to be guided by someone in that process, do one a week. It's just a few pages. Piper's hard when you're trying to read 500 pages, but when you're trying to read seven, it's really worthwhile. So what Jesus demands from the world. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a call for us to praise God with Peter. That word translated blessed is the word from which we get the word eulogy, that uh, talk at a funeral where someone talks about how good the person was. Uh, Peter's about to write about God's goodness to us. Continuing. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Big sentence. Lots of truth. Good stuff. Worth memorizing. One of my recurrent New Year's resolutions is to get better about memorizing scripture. If you want to do that, this would be a good good verses to start with. According to his great mercy. We know, especially after weeks of being told by Ben how badly we stink apart from Christ, that the only reason God saves his children is his great mercy. It's not something we deserve. He has caused us to be born again. That translates a word that describes God's active role in the begetting, the beginning, the the initiation of our spiritual life, the active role of the Father in causing physical life, 
to come into being is made clear in the opening passage of Matthew. You might want to turn there, Matthew chapter 1. And Mandy, you can call out the page number when you get there. Sword drill. For you non-Baptists, there used to be competitions where you'd try to get the page first. 807 in the Pew Bible. Well, it's a long passage. The old word was begot. Um, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, etc., etc. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, as the King James says. Um, Isaac did not cause himself to come into being. He's a result of Abraham's begetting. Now, one thing that I thought was a little fun when I looked at this, if you have a tendency sometimes when you're reading on a schedule to kind of skim stuff, like I do sometimes, you might get to the end of this passage, verse 16, and I'll just read it. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. You might have a tendency to read that and go, hmm, I thought it was a virgin birth. This is giving Joseph credit. But guess what? Those commentators that use Greek, they're so good. It turns out that the of whom Jesus was born is, has gender in Greek, and it's feminine. So referring to Mary and the was born, as ESV does it, um, is a passive verb. So grammar is kind of important. All the other uses of that verb in this long paragraph, or two, three, four paragraphs, were all active. So that makes it clear that Joseph did not beget Jesus. He was born of Mary. Now, I thought that was interesting. I hope you did. Anyway, of whom is feminine? Ben's also reminded us through a long meditation on Lazarus that we don't save ourselves. God has caused us to be born again, just as he raised Lazarus from the dead. The story of Lazarus illustrates the truth so well, and Ephesians 2 says it so clearly that I wanted to read Ephesians 2, the first 10 verses, so you can turn there and read along. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even though, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Continuing, First Peter. 
verse 3. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We're born again to a living hope, a confident assurance of the future that God has promised, a hope that never dies. This living hope is a productive, fruitful hope. Just as James describes faith without works being dead faith, we can conclude that a living hope results in a visible, active life of living our hope out loud through our words and our behavior. We're born again through the means of Christ's resurrection from the dead, and all that implies his eternal nature as the Son of God, his birth to a virgin through the power of the Spirit, his perfect sinless life, his horrible death on the cross, and his sovereign majesty as he sits at the right hand of the Father now and forever. Verse 4 continues Peter's inspired description of the object of our living hope. He tells us we're born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Those of us who have been opening the word with Ben for a while now have come to see that the proof of the genuineness of our profession of faith is our perseverance in that faith. That is, true believers persevere. This is one of many, many passages in Scripture that make it clear that true believers are secure for eternity. Once really saved, always saved. That inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Our salvation is secure, not because of anything we do. We're guarded by God's power through the faith he gives us and the faith he increases in us as he sanctifies us. And as we cry out to him, I believe, help my unbelief. Let's move on, verses 6 and 7. In this, your living hope, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter wrote to Christians who had suffered and who were anticipating suffering. Friends had been persecuted to the point of renouncing their faith, and friends had been killed. Friends had lost jobs. Friends had lost spouses. They were grieved, but despite that testing by fire, their faith was proven to be genuine because they looked hopefully to their future with our Lord. They were able to rejoice because God strengthened their faith through those trials in the power of his spirit. Their faith was not just theoretical. It was proven to be genuine because it persisted through terrible persecution. That demonstration of God's power in the lives of his children will be found 
to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I've been so blessed by reading Stephanie McCord's blog as she describes in one breath how painful the loss of Keith has been, and then in the next breath writes about the mercies of God. Thank you. Our lives, similarly, should be marked by rejoicing, by exalting in our living hope, not just when we're singing, but every day, no matter what we're going through. None of us do this perfectly. We're all works of God in process. I suspect um, that Stephanie sometimes gets a little embarrassed by people talking about how strong she is. Um, and she is in his strength, but um, none of us do this perfectly. When we're suffering, this rejoicing is only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit, and we must pray for that kind of faith and believe that we'll receive it. James wrote in the first, his first chapter of his letter, but let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We demonstrate our living hope with that kind of faith. Verses 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's a description of the expected, normal Christian life. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though none of us have seen Christ, we love him. We put him first. We put his expectations above our sinful desires. We pray for a changed heart so that our stony hearts will be sanctified more and more into hearts of flesh on which he's written his commands. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Even though we do not now see him, our belief and our rejoicing with joy inexpressible I'm sorry. <sighs> Results in us obtaining the salvation of our souls. Do you ever have one of those little brain things that just, you get a distraction that just closes you out? Our life of faith lived out through whatever suffering he decides is best for his children, children culminates in his glory when we will see our Lord face to face and will completely experience that joy inexpressible. We have that living hope to rejoice in now, and we can anticipate an infinitely greater measure of joy in the future, uh, a joy that promises to grow throughout all eternity as we come to know our Lord more and more. Let me close by suggesting a few ways to apply these truths in our lives. First, as I said earlier, I think we would all benefit from meditating on our status as exiles as refugees or pilgrims in this world. And again, number two, I'd ask that you join me in pursuing radical obedience to our Lord's commands. And third, let's get to know him deeply and intimately through time spent in his word, bathed in spirit-filled prayer,
and love him and rejoice in his glory. He's worthy of all our devotion, all our praise. If you would bow your heads and your hearts with me and close your eyes. The Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, who made himself nothing, who humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross. The Father raised him from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven so that he could send the Holy Spirit to fill us and enable us to live for him. I beg you to believe in him, to trust his payment for your sins, and to live your life dependent on him for everything. Let's pray. Father, please, please drive the truths of this passage into our hearts and enable us to know you more deeply and to rejoice in you more fully and to love you infinitely more than anything or anyone you've created. Please sanctify us by your spirit. And Father, as we worship you in giving and song, I ask that you multiply the offering from your people and use it to your glory. I pray this in the name of your Son and in the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.